Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate, a show about journalism. We're coming to you from 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal lands of the Eora Nation, right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and directly to your device across the globe via podcast. I'm Monica Attard. On Monday this week, a new report from Media Diversity Australia sent shockwaves around the country and, of course, its newsrooms, or maybe I should say should have sent shockwaves. The report is called Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories? And it paints a damning picture of our newsrooms, not just being overwhelmingly white, but in many cases completely lacking any form of diversity outside the odd European-sounding name. We'll get to the details soon, but consider this. When our newsrooms are overwhelmingly Anglo-Saxon and European in makeup, how can they speak for all and to all Australians? If the pandemic has taught us any lasting lesson, it is that we really are all in this together, but it seems together doesn't extend to who gets to tell the stories on our TV screens. Before we begin, a declaration from me. I'm a founding member of the Media Diversity Australia Advisory Board and I am committed to its mission. So to help us grapple with this most important of issues, I'm happy to say that we have two Australian journalists with us who will bring their experience, their knowledge and their diverse backgrounds to this matter. Sushi Does is the Chief of Staff, RMIT ABC Fact Check. She's also a former opinion editor for The Age. She's the winner of two Melbourne Press Club Quill Awards, including Best Columnist in 2005. And she's also the author of Deranged Marriage, a memoir. Bakri Mahmood is a social media producer for the ABC. He's been a media cadet for ABC Life and reporter at ABC Far North Queensland. So the report, Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories? It took a two-week slice from all five of our TV networks and major regional players in June of last year, that is 2019. The results are damning or should be damning for anyone working in or managing in the media industry. In short, when you look at the industry-wide figures of 270 presenters, commentators and reporters during the time sampled, almost 89% were Anglo-Saxon or European in background. And when you start to break this figure down, the picture just gets worse. Channel 9, for instance, was 97% Anglo-Saxon or European, with 2.9% coming from non-European backgrounds and 0% identifying as Indigenous. To put this number of less than 3% in perspective, the 2016 census found that 21% of Australians are non-European and 3% identify as Indigenous. And the major regional stations were also just terrible in their lack of diversity. So, Sushi, let me start with you. The report was pretty damning of the media industry, showing it to be hopelessly unrepresentative of the wider community. Were you at all surprised by the findings? No, I'm afraid I wasn't. Um, we have seen this picture before of um, a lack of representation of uh, diverse uh, voices in the media. We've um, There have been other reports in the past, certainly um, uh, previously by the um, uh, then Race Discrimination Commissioner Tim Pomasan um, had a report where he looked um, where they found that it wasn't just a lack of diversity in media. There's a lack of diversity in politics, in business, in the public service, and in the um, uh, higher echelons of our universities as well. So I'm afraid this report didn't come as a surprise to me. No. And Bakri, what was your response when uh, when you heard the news? 
I had been kind of uh, following media diversity's uh, reports for a while, so it didn't really come as a surprise to me. It was kind of this thing where suddenly there was a lot of attention on it. Um, and so I was, I was like, oh, okay, they must have finally released the report, but it, it came to absolutely no surprise. I think the, the numbers are visibly clear in any uh, editorial meeting or newsroom that I've ever been in. Hmm. So, Buckley, you, you, you've been working in the media for a couple of years now. First of all, can you just give us a little bit of your background um, and, and also talk to us a little bit about how easy or otherwise it's been for you in the media? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I come from a journalism background, but I um, also come from a kind of uh, facilitation, conversation facilitation and creative arts background so I do a lot of things outside of journalism Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of content creation um I have been yeah in the industry for maybe three or four years now I think it's 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 been an incredible journey in terms of um opportunities and meeting uh really lovely people and it has been challenging and easy at times so I think the the challenges have been more so in the sense of I'm I think let me put it to you this way I don't think there's ever been a white journalist that's been the only white person in the room where I'm often the only um, black person in the room and to me it's not so much just about uh, color um, but really uh, kind of cultural background and class and kind of connection to a a you know, a class that you don't really see in newsroom. So a lot of the people I'd work with, um, you know, lovely people, great, well-meaning people, but often kind of come from a similar um, upper middle class uh, kind of a background, you know, mainly very white neighborhoods and have very similar life experiences, went to all the best universities and all that stuff. So they're informed people, but they don't have a kind of lived experience with a lot of everyday Australians. Um, so I kind of entered these situations often. Um, I know how to do my job, but I don't think like everyone around me. I don't, I know how to use the rhetoric that is, that exists in, you know, in different bubbles. So I kind of went into the um, industry thinking the stuff about, you know, race and class and education that I, my friends and I are kind of aware of, I I went to the industry thinking, well, I'm going to be working with all these experienced professionals. They would know all this stuff a lot more than me because they would be a lot more educated. And I was really surprised where uh, to find that a lot of people just had no idea about this stuff and they didn't really understand racism and discrimination. Um, and you'd kind of mention things and they'll be like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Like, that's never come up. And that, like, really kind of threw me back. So it was, but it's interesting to to hear you say that you would bring up those issues and they would express surprise. Do you think that they took on board your lived experience? Um, yeah, look, it depends, right? So not every kind of um, department I've worked in has been the same. Some have been, particularly in the arts, have kind of been a lot more understanding because, again, a lot of the time with arts, we want cultural diversity because we're, there's a kind of dry up of the same story, so they need newer stories. Um, but um, in terms of kind of political news, I think 
what the industry does is that it just kind of listens to itself. So it listens to its trusted fellow journalist who's mm. been writing the same thing for another year. Or it, it kind of kind of goes around in circles. So when someone like me comes in, he's like, oh, there's a whole other take here. There's this whole other voice that we don't really uh, listen to. Mm. And the response I've gotten in the past is like, well, no, that's just identity politics. Like it's not, you know, it's who are these people? Why do we care? Why should we listen to them? It's like, well, these are the people that you're writing about. These are the voices that need to be represented. And where, and, where, and where do those conversations end up? I mean, are, are your ideas then taken up and the people that you're suggesting be spoken to spoken to? Or um, do, is, is your experience that, generally speaking, what ends up being shown to an audience uh, is what was originally intended? Um, I think sometimes it can be on a superficial, superficial level. Um, so it's kind of this thing where like, okay, yeah, well, let's, let's just find a brown person to talk to. Like, let's find, let's meet the thing. So, you know, we've, we've got a range and like where we're being, and it's very clinical. It's not like, let's come to understand this whole new perspective that challenges the, the status quo. Like let's understand the source of it. And I think sometimes that might be done a bit more, particularly with the public broadcaster, um, in, in kind of meeting the expectations of what like the audience puts pressure on. Mm -hmm. So, so I think the way they approach the kind of impartiality situation is like, okay, well, we'll, we'll hear from um, a Muslim woman, but we'll hear from like, you know, a, a racist white man. Cause you know, we want to have both, both perspectives. And so the audience then kind of backs one side and detests another side. And so they obviously, you know, right. respond very like, Oh, well, okay, all right, like, you know, we don't want to upset our audience. Like, they, they pay our, our funds. Like, we have to go with that. And so it kind of uh, allows the ebb and flow of the quality of journalism to um, not reflect Australia's actual kind of makeup, but just reflect who's kind of being the loudest and putting the most pressure. Yeah, who has the biggest, who has the loudest voice, I suppose. And so, Shri, what about your experiences? You came to Australia looking for a fresh start. Has that been easy for you in in, in the media? Um. Well, I worked at The Age uh, for well, 22 years. So I've been a journalist for 25 years or thereabouts in Australia. Yeah. Um, and I've had <laughs> various different uh, experiences. Um, when I was at The Age, and I mean, I want to give you some real life examples here, um, because it's very easy to talk in sort of general terms about not being taken seriously or whatever. But I think it's the examples that's that speak the loudest. When I was in um, at the age and I was covering stories, I found it sometimes very difficult to sell stories that had, um, you know, anything to do with that, um, uh, you know, brown people or black people. Okay, so um, I covered the dodgy colleges stories uh, almost for two years. International students were being ripped off by these colleges. It was a huge money making machine. Uh, the federal government was fully aware of what was going on and uh, acted very slowly to put it right. But I, yet I struggled to sell my stories for, um, uh, you know, particularly for the front page. I thought it was a national scandal, um, uh, but I really struggled to sell my stories for the front page. On and, wh and why do you think that was? I, I, uh, look, 
I don't know. I, I sometimes felt that I just wasn't taken seriously, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, sometimes I joke that I've got a couple of things working against me. It's not just that I'm brown. Sometimes I feel like it's being a woman it also yeah. doesn't help, okay? When there was a story, there were a number of stories where uh, dodgy colleges um, actually closed down. And those, uh, the students who were affected there were domestic students, okay? Mm. When those stories happened, they made it to the front page. And I found that really frustrating. Okay, um, so so that's what one of that's just one of my experiences that I had. But having said that, when I finally um, uh, worked in the position of opinion editor, and I did that, um, uh, you know, in an acting role and in a, a, a proper role for nearly ten years, mm-hmm. that was the first time that I felt that I could make a change, and that's because I was in charge of the opinion pages. And I could commission the articles that, um, uh, you know, that I thought were important. And I could also bring on uh, columnists who I thought we ought to have. So, and how, was, and how was that received both internally within the organisation and by audience? It, it was received well, okay, to be honest. So I took on Wali Dali. I took on a whole bunch of female journalists, uh, female columnists as well. Um, and I thought that that was important. And I'm really happy to say that Wali Dali is still there writing yes. a weekly column. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, and, I, and I think it was well received um, by the my colleagues and by readers as well. And I think that that's the kind of change you can make when you do put diverse uh, journalists in leadership positions and allow them to make decisions and back the and and then the organization backs those decisions you can really make a difference and i felt that the for the first time that i could really make a difference was when i became opinion editor right right okay so let's look more closely at the report i mean the general response to it it, it should be said i suppose um up front is that uh, it's kind of fallen into two camps there are those who acknowledge that there is an issue that there are problems and then there are those who are pushing back, both seven and nine, who are the worst offenders when it comes to diversity, have made statements that, um, you know, are kind of ducking and weaving around the issue. So she, in, in 2020, is it enough to say, look, we're trying, but people who are culturally and linguistically diverse are not applying for our jobs? Well, it's interesting that uh, the commercial network, uh, at least one of them that I heard, said that there were insufficient numbers of diverse people applying for those jobs. I think the first thing you have to do is take that comment seriously. Um, I think it's too easily dismissed, okay? And we have to look at, well, is that the case? I think that there are a number of barriers to entry uh, for people from diverse backgrounds, okay? Um, Firstly, I think, if I can just quickly run through them, socioeconomic groups, uh, we've got to accept first that a lot of journalists do come from middle-class backgrounds, um, and a lot of people who are from migrant backgrounds uh, often come from, uh, uh, you know, families where there are significant economic and social challenges, okay? So we need to um, acknowledge that. Secondly, I think we have to face up to the fact that um, the media in some areas, like newspapers, for example, the tectonic plates are still shifting. Newspapers are becoming smaller rather than bigger. Some of them are even closing down. And you've got to ask um, whether, you know, are people still interested in working in industries which which appear to be on the decline? 
Right. I think also you have to look at, um, you know, I'm going to use um, Asian families as an example here. A lot of Asian parents don't think of journalism as a uh, profession for their kids. They often want them to go into medicine or engineering or become lawyers or whatever. Um, certainly that's the case with Indian parents. Um, and I think also with Chinese parents, they don't always think of journalism as, their, as the first choice for their kids. And we have to bear that in mind. I think also that journalism in many ways is a closed network. I mean, you know, we say, you know, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, well it's both. When your connections provide you with a pathway into an industry, things can be so much easier. And these connections are simply not well established for people from ethnic backgrounds. And the last, sorry, the last point I just want to make is that I have an issue with lazy newsrooms as well. Mm. <laughs> Few newsrooms um, actively seek out ethnically diverse voices to work in their newsrooms. They dream about it, but they don't actively recruit uh, those uh, people from those backgrounds. They could have quotas if they wanted to, uh, but they don't. I certainly think there are barriers to entry. Bakri, what have you found? Do you recognise that there are barriers? And, and, and if so, for somebody like you, what are they? Yeah, so for me, I think um, the barriers are not only just so much in getting in, it's... Um, once you're in, you kind of have to rein down your voice, the alternative voice to something that's more palatable to the kind of um, homogenous culture that exists inside the newsrooms. I think often journalists tell themselves that like, you know, we don't have, you know, we have a culture of objectivity and, and accuracy and that's kind of all. But reality, you, you bring any group of people together and they create a kind of culture, a group mentality, a way of of, of what's normal, what's taboo and what's not. And so when you don't have enough of a range of perspectives and experiences, there's not really going to be anything that's kind of um, challenging that, that status quo. Um, so for me, I, I found that to be a barrier. So if you have one black person in an editorial meeting, if they speak up, there's not any, there's not three other, you know, Asian or black people there to be like, yeah, that makes sense. Or I see that it's just kind of like you're the one person and everyone's like, I've never heard of that concept before. So that do you think, that. so do you think that's causing people of diverse backgrounds who actually make it into industry to not remain there, to, to feel as though there's not, uh, you know, that there's not enough uh, in the business for them? Yeah, I think it makes them feel that they can't be their true selves. They either have to kind of um, adapt to what is palatable or just kind of um you know I, i'll just be scary that a lot of uh, people of color don't really care about any of this stuff and so they they kind of just go with the status quo and say so, and they're the ones that often newsrooms will kind of uphold and be like yeah look we have this kind of one black journalist kind of diverse we are um and it's beside the point and then the rest of the people in the room kind of all have the same background so it's not um really diversity it's just uh, one kind of um, taking individual oh, all of the time. Oh, okay. Yeah. okay. So, I mean, part of the pushback on, on the report is the idea that Anglo and European journalists can cover all kinds of stories, even those from outside of their own personal lived experiences. Is that kind of missing the point, that, critic, that, that statement, or is it, uh, is it fair enough, Sushi? What do you think? Uh, no, I mean, I think if you have a newsroom that is full of um, you know, one type of 
you know, one group of people, mm. you are you, inevitably you're going to get a sort of homogeneity in viewpoints. Um, and that tends to produce a sort of uncritical consensus. And that's the issue here. Um, you, it, it, it's not just about having more diverse journalists so that you can reflect the community on which we report. I mean, that's important too. But you've just got to be aware that if you don't have those diverse voices, you do end up producing um, a homogenous viewpoint and, and this, you know, uncritical consensus. Uh, and that that is, when that happens, you have done your audience or your readers a disservice, okay? Because when you have lots of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of diversity in newsrooms, the final news product um, will tell the widest possible range of stories um, that best meet the audience's need. And that's what helps to build and expand audience or reader trust. And, mm. and that's that's really important. So no, we, I think vanilla journalism, if I can put it like that, where you, it's all coming from one point of view, uh, really uh, does does the audience a, a huge disservice. And, and, and do you think that that uncritical consensus which I agree with you, is is definitely a thing, Bakri. Uh, do you think that is driving some communities away from mainstream media, causing a level of distrust that might be insurmountable, it's, uh, you know, uh, insurmountable full stop, um, and, and driving them to media sources that, uh, that speak to them? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's uh, a distrust in media kind of across the political spectrum um so be it you know um often angry men or hurt men who feel kind of um uh constantly attacked by what they perceive to be kind of leftist feminist media um or or or, or, or no garbage on sky or fox um <laughs> they they turn to youtube and and they find some youtuber who's telling them something that's not necessarily accurate um mm. And so they 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 kind of chew that up and buy that up and and they they tell themselves well I'm I'm a bit more informed I'm getting the truth and really it's kind of um, they it's confirmation bias and they're hearing what they want to hear and these these YouTube makers kind of thrive off that um, and so you you do have this thing because of that lack of trust people are going to other sources and and being misinformed along the way um, mm. which which. Uh, so sorry, which empowers like yeah, big political agendas, be it from Russia or Trump or um, whoever's kind of trying to peddle all their propaganda at a time. Yeah, how how critical a problem is this at the moment? Do you think, Sushi? Um, what taking taking on? Yes. Um, well, I think it's really important, and I think it's not just it's not just important to take on those type of people from um, culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. But it's important that once they're there, um, they're retained as well. Yeah. Um, and that that the organisation fosters a, a, a workplace culture that sort of makes those people feel that they can be themselves. Um, you know, when I... I had an incident once where, um, you know, when I was a reporter, I lent my, you know, the, the earbuds um, for the recording, recorder to a colleague who, uh, who wanted to borrow them. I gave them to him. A few days later, I went back to him and said, can I get my um, earbuds back? And he opened his drawer. He pulled them out. He sniffed them and said, oh, they smell like curry. They must be yours. And then oh, no. You're kidding. No. Now, to me, that kind of experience 
is it, well, it's really quite offensive, um, and and that that kind of thing can't. It just cannot happen. It must not happen, you know. Um, I went to other colleagues and and I was absolutely gobsmacked. And I said, I really don't know what to do. And in the same newsroom in which that person worked, I found others who said, you must demand a written apology, which I did in the end. And he did apologise. So, uh, I mean, I'm just giving you that one example of, um, it's not just that we have to take on uh, people from diverse backgrounds, we've got to make sure that the environment in which they work is um, inclusive as well. And of course, that, that that comes that comes from the top, doesn't it? Creating those environments is is something that bosses are charged with creating. And I think one of the staggering things about this report as well from Media Diversity Australia was that 100% of news directors are Anglo-Saxon and male. In senior leadership roles in the news, uh, seven has zero percent women. Nine is just 14%. So behind the camera, it's worse actually than what we're actually seeing in our living room. So how alarmed do you think we should be or how concerned do you think we should be about the possibility of new newsroom cultures when those sort of statistics start at the very top? We should be very concerned and we need to make a loud noise about it. Um, And I think, uh, you know, I think the ABC has um, d- done really well in this area. I mean, they've actually got a diversity and inclusion plan and they do have, um, uh, you know, targets that they've set for, uh, you know, um, uh, I think they want 15% of content maker uh, roles and 15% of executive roles to be filled by culturally and linguistically diverse by 2022, I think, is their current um, target. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing you want. The BBC has something very similar. Um, and once you put those targets in place, then you've got to measure them, okay? And you've got to see whether you actually reach those targets, and then you've got to report on them as well. And that's the kind of thing we need to encourage um, those commercial networks to um, uh, think about. But that's not going to happen until we start making a loud noise about it. And we can't just make a loud noise about it every time someone produces a report and then we all forget about it and mm. move on until the next report comes out. That's true. Bakri, do you think that quotas help? I I really do think quotas help. Um, and I know that's kind of controversial uh, because people are like, well, everything should be based um, on merit. merit. But I think uh, merit is a kind of complicated thing and deceiving because we, we talk about privileges and opportunities. Um, I'll just give a, I try to give a realistic example of a cadetship program that I was a part of. That was a kind of a brand new program that the ABC had introduced. And the aim was to bring in, you know, young um, uh, media savvy um, people from kind of a diverse range and not just culturally diverse, but kind of across across class and there's you know one kid in there who was you know white but also like not from upper middle class and this I remember him saying to him is like if it wasn't for this opportunity I'd be flipping burgers right now um and now and now you know he's 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 killing it and like literally all of us in that cadetship program are doing um amazing things because I think fundamentally when you um create opportunities that you know aren't as organic as like, yeah, you know someone you get the job you've you, your parents have backed you the whole way you have more experience but if you kind of go uh, along the um, quota route, what happens is you find people that would never thought they would have opportunities before. And so as a result, they're a lot more driven. Sometimes you have to be more patient with them because, you know, they um, they need a bit more support in some ways, but in other ways, they're a, a lot more driven and a lot more um, really willing to step up and bringing 
fresh, new, diverse content. And um, we, we saw that as a result from us. We, you know, we produced some of the, the freshest content um, uh, and, and really kind of uh, audience expanding content within ABC, which is the purpose of having us there. Mm. Uh, and and I, so I think that is a kind of successful uh, and positive result, and, and, but it's not, you know. And, and that was well received, was it? A lot of the time, uh, it was really well received by, by audiences. I think at times there's sometimes a situation where uh, certain um, uh, kind of departments when they're broadcasting ABC are kind of worried about losing um, some of their main audiences. So if you have a story that kind of represents, um, you know, a young brown person, you might not get, you know, your majority um uh middle-aged white women's or listening to it although that's your base audience but you're going to get a lot more young people paying attention mm -hmm. and so sometimes they kind of weigh up and they're like well like this doesn't get high numbers because it's like well because you're trying to get a new audience you don't have those high numbers of that new audience yet so you have to be willing to accept that and just keep trying and let the audience expand but sometimes they we see and and i imagine the commercials are the same as like well no like our audience is just they look like they look like this and so if we give them something that's completely um, different to how we usually do, like they're not going to pay attention to us. And I think they just struggle to accept that. And you're like, sometimes you have to accept that and keep moving forward because that's how you're going to have uh, audience growth. You can't constantly trying to be appeasing your base audience with every single piece that you do because if there's no development or growth or yeah, yeah. certainly there's an argument for challenge there. Now, I wonder what the two of you think of that cartoon that the Australian published last week on Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I'll start with you, Sushi, if I might, on this one. What was your take on it? And would a diverse newsroom have published that cartoon? And if so, stood by it the way the Australian has? Well, um, it's interesting because, um, you know, as opinionated for 10 years, uh, I dealt with a lot of cartoons and um, uh, cartoonists and I had to look at what they drew and make a decision about whether I would put it in the paper or not. The first thing to say about that particular cartoon is that um, I just don't think it was a very good one, okay? Before yeah. we can talk about race or anything else, it just wasn't a very good cartoon, okay? Uh, that's the first thing. But I think um, I really struggle with these kinds of things because I, I think that, you know, people do jump to this, oh, it's racist, okay? Um, I, I looked at that and I thought, is that racist? Um, it's, or is it's, it just outrageous or trying yes, to provoke uh, outrage? Yeah, yeah. Um, the thing with the cartoon, and I, I think where we, we can see that they were running into trouble was when the editor or whoever it was um, tried to justify or explain w how that cartoon worked. And, he, and the response was that, well, those were Biden's words. And we're just sort of reflecting yeah. Biden's words. Now, the argument is illogical and actually quite stupid uh, because, yes, of course, they're Biden's words, but you've got to think of the context in which he used them and the context in which the cartoonists has now used them. Okay. It, it was not an accurate reflection, or it didn't, it didn't, it wasn't funny, it wasn't clever, it was just a, a daft cartoon. Um, I think that, you know, I, I whenever this kind of issue comes up, I always ask myself, would I? Would I have run that cartoon? Um, I, I don't think I probably would have, um, simply because it's just not a very good cartoon and it wasn't funny, it wasn't clever, it wasn't witty, it wasn't smart. It was, there was nothing in it that I thought was particularly good. Mm. Bakri, the, the Australian's um, defence of the cartoon, that, it, that leak was mocking Biden, not, not Harris. Do, do you buy that? Um, 
I do see that point because I and I would almost go as fast to say that I agree. I as a black man don't trust Joe Biden. I, I don't think his interest is to actually represent black people. I think his interest is to just win as many votes um, to defeat Trump, which is what politicians do. Um, however, I think the way they did it would have been a lot more tasteful if they had a, a diversity of people in their room as they're creating these um, these comics. Um, and I, I refer to it like I've, I've made sketch shows myself and worked in comedy rooms. And when we have a writing room of a diverse group of people when we're discussing a joke having people there that challenge us always just makes for a longer conversation but but for more kind of um i guess informed humor so i think the point that we're trying to make about joe biden is not a completely invalid point but i think they just did it in a very lazy and, and tasteless way Mm. Okay. Now, we've touched on this issue a little bit before you brought it up, Sushi, and that is the the pathways into media and journalism specifically. And I'd just kind of like to thrash that out a little bit more, if I might, um, because if you've graduated from one of the major universities, found an internship at nine of the ABC, for example, um, chances are that your particular uh, background is actually middle class, yeah, and quite possibly white. Now, that's not a judgment, it's just a fact. How do we open up the media? So it's not just more, uh, so, so it's, 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 it is more open to culturally and linguistically diverse people and, and, and also open to people from all sides of the economic divide. How do we do that? Because it's hard, right? Yes, it is hard. Um, I think firstly, um, uh, look, I think the journalism schools, have um, uh, a responsibility here where they have to make sure that when they, um, you know, interview the students who apply to them to do courses that they have some sort of um, focus or attention being paid to whether the, the J schools are filling their classrooms up with, um, uh, you know, white middle class students. So they, they need to be aware of that kind of stuff. And the J schools are the ones that... De- so, so can I just stop you there? So are you suggesting that, that universities, for example, should, should put a quota on the number of white middle class students studying journalism? Look, I think quotas, <laughs> as we were saying earlier, quotas are um, problematic because first thing is that, you know, the, the argument is, oh, look, it's got to be based on merit. Uh, yes, I agree with that. Of course it does. Um, but if you um, just, I'm, I'm just talking about quotas, not in universities, but in the workplace at the moment. If you have an insufficiently diverse newsroom, um, uh, it means that uh, there aren't, there aren't any brown or black journalists with merit at this stage, all right? And I would say that the lack of quotas is a system that hasn't worked thus far, has it? Um, we don't have quotas at the moment, and look what we've got. I think that journalism schools, before I sort of say hard and fast, yes, there should be quotas, perhaps it would be appropriate to simply say that they need to be attentive to this, okay? And if they aren't at the moment, they should be. I know RMIT certainly is, um, but those the J schools need to bring in those students. Now, the other thing I do, and I do this... Um, outside my normal work, um, I, I actually do go to schools and I've offered up, um, you know, that you know, when they talk about um, careers and young people choosing what careers they want to be, they, they make those decisions when they're in year nine, year 10, or whenever it might be. And I, I have gone to schools and said, would you like me to come and talk, you know, about the career of journalism? Um, and, and I use that opportunity 
to tell students, look, you can be a journalist, you know, if you come from a Chinese background or brown background, Indian background, whatever. That's that's my personal attempt at putting this thing right. Um, but I think the journalism schools are important. And also, let's not forget, journalism schools are really um, uh, important when it comes to finding internships for journalists. So yes, and I was, I was about to get to that point because, I mean, for, for, as, a, as a journalism educator, I think one of the biggest uh, problems that I see is that um, people who are uh, from a diverse background and who tend to come from a, 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 you know, a lower socioeconomic background as well um, are finding it very, very difficult to do the internships that are required uh, if you really want to work as, as a journalist and, and get a, a foot in the door as a, a young graduate. Um, so the issue of paid versus unpaid internships becomes a very, very live one. Buckley, do you, was that your experience? Do you see the lack of paid internships, paid opportunities to get your foot in the door um, as one of the major contributing factors for the paucity of people of diverse backgrounds in our newsrooms? Yeah, absolutely. I think. Um in terms of being able to build experience and kind of um, get hours under your belt, it's a lot harder if you have to also sustain yourself uh, while studying um, to then just be working for free. Uh, and so some people, you know, have the opportunity to be supported by their parents while they take on an internship. Um, very fortunately for me, I um, towards the end of my degree, I was doing a paid internship and I am really grateful for that because I don't think I don't know where I would have been if it wasn't for that, because that allowed me for the first time in my life to focus on my studies and work in something that developed my career and insight and also uh, allowed me to sustain myself. Mm -hmm. And when I got to that point, I was like, okay, I really believe I can make it now. Um, but before that, it was, it, was a, it was a constant kind of sense of um, uncertainty and, and um, definitely don't have that kind of familiar support and backing. And you're constantly hearing how the, the industry, you know, lacks people that look like you. There's a lot there to deter you. Okay, look, we're running out of time rapidly, but can I just end on this question to you both? How hopeful are you? And in what time frame would you uh, expect to see some change in the makeup of our newsrooms? Buckley? I think that's really dependent on um, how quickly we change the leadership inside newsrooms. Mm -hmm. So I think we're constantly going to have a kind of... Um, more you know, uh, culturally diverse and um, gender diverse people graduating and wanting to become journalists. But unless you kind of change up who the editors are and who the kind of chiefs of staffs are, um, the process of change is going to be really slow. Um, so if we do change the editors, I see things being much better in the next five or so years. But if we don't, which I don't think we will, I don't see it becoming much better. It will probably take decades. Okay, so you're pretty pessimistic. What about you, Sushi? What do you think? Look, um, when I always wanted to be a journalist all my life, never wanted to do anything else. I had to first battle my parents who didn't want me to be a journalist. I had to go through an unpaid internship. I had to go through the selection process to get onto a newspaper. And then once I was in, I had to battle the newsroom itself, if you like. Okay. I think my feeling is that Australia is um, a bit of a backwater when it comes to culturally diverse newsrooms. I think other countries, particularly the US and the UK, are do, they do it better than us. Um, and But I, I think we are seeing um, increasing focus on the um, issue. 
And I am really heartened by the ABC's um, diversity and inclusion plan. Whether other you know, commercial networks will take up something similar is, is difficult, but I think government, um, you know, if we just had the right noises made at higher levels, that would help. I'm a little bit like Bakri. I think the time frame is, um, it's slow. It's been slow thus far, and there's absolutely no indication that it's going to get any faster anytime soon. So um, I wish I didn't say have to say that, but I'm afraid I don't think that we the momentum the momentum is not there yet. Um, uh, but hopefully, um, hopefully it will be there before um, before my you know my own daughter, if she wants to ever become a journalist, I hope she doesn't have to face some of the things I've had to face. Yes, indeed. Well, look, I, I think we'll leave it there. Thank you both very, very much for joining me today. It's been really enlightening. Um, I hope that you're both wrong on that timeline for resolution, but uh, fingers crossed and I think a lot of hard work, so let's roll our sleeves up and try to get it done. But thank you both very, very much for joining Fourth Estate today. Thanks, thank On that note, I'd like to thank you both, Sushi Daz and Bakri Mahmood, for your time today. It was a great discussion. And if you'd like the report, Who Gets to Tell Australian Stories, just go to the Media Diversity Australia website. And thanks for listening to The Fourth Estate. This edition was recorded at the studios of 2SER and heard across the country on the Community Radio Network. Fourth Estate is produced with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation, so thanks to them for their continuing support. Make sure you subscribe to Fourth Estate on your favourite podcast app so you can hear us talk media, politics and, of course, everything in between. We'll be back with more next week, but in the meantime, you can stay in touch with us on Twitter. Our handle there is Fourth Estate AU. Thanks, as always, to my producer, Anthony Dockwell. My name's Monica Attard, and thank you for listening. <laughs>